serious. I will not talk next Sunday without it. Okay? So, uh, <clears throat> join us next week. It's always a fun time and great opportunities for family pictures. Some new things this year that I think you'll dig. Easter egg hunt for the kids, all kinds of good stuff. So, today we are uh, back in Philippians and. You know, this past month has been interesting because even though we have been we've been studying these verses, Philippians one twelve through fourteen, which really address suffering in the life of the Christian. And certainly suffering is not particular to the life of the Christian, but since we are trying to pursue Jesus well, we've been talking about it in the context of the life of the Christian. And so we've kind of done a bit of a series within a series where we have looked at these verses and we've not tried to skirt over them. The whole purpose of this series is to talk about how we, as followers of Jesus, can have joy in any situation in life, no matter how, how dire the circumstances are. And the reason we have spent some time addressing suffering, of which today will be the last of the series within a series, is because this is an issue that um, it torpedoes both the Christian, and I think it really is a problem for those who do, yet, who do not yet believe in Jesus. Suffering is the kind of thing, it's one of those critical things in life that really can become disabling to those wanting to follow Jesus well, and those basically using this as a legitimate excuse to say, I can never follow Jesus because of suffering. And so we spent these last three weeks, and they will kind of culminate today in the fourth, talking about you know, we talk about joy, and I think that we're going to get to that again, and we've talked about it a good bit, but we need to be very clear about the fact that Paul has joy in his life right now during an incredibly challenging circumstance, a false imprisonment, and he's awaiting death. He has essentially come to a new position in his heart about what it means to suffer and why he suffers. And so, this has been kind of the premise of what we've been talking about. And last week, we looked at the Gospel of John. We kind of jumped back in there to find the origin of suffering and Jesus giving us some very clear things about what it is and what it is not, who brings it about and who does not. Very important message. All these talks are standalone, but I think you'll find that they will make better sense if you listen to them as kind of a, a, a four-point volume. Today, we're going to do something uh, a little different. We're actually going to talk about suffering, obviously, but we're going to talk about it from the angle of uh, the two most significant questions that I think are asked about suffering. Now, there are lots of questions when it comes to suffering, uh, but these two are some of the more common ones that I think are worth addressing. I mentioned one to you last week. Is, uh, is, oh, I mentioned the big one was when we, when we suffer, why does it seem that some people feel like it's a good idea to walk away from God? We'll get to that. And the first one is a very simple one, but a very profound one. is suffering the world evidence against God's existence. And so what I want to do this morning is on a Sunday where, uh, and we'll touch on this again, where suffering is really why we have life. If ever we needed a Sunday or a day to prove that suffering, although at times might seem pointless to us, can have cosmic purposes, the nature of Jesus on the cross is the greatest evidence of suffering, of God bringing about good things through situations that seem incredibly bad. This is it. And so it begs a good question. This is one of the main things. Um, we would call this kind of a belief that keeps people from wanting to pursue Jesus, or at least God, uh, is suffering in the world evidence against God's existence. That's the first thing I want to talk about today. Because this is going to matter. If you're not a believer or know somebody who's not a believer, this is likely a question that they're asking. Uh, and if you are a believer, it's very, it's very common, and we'll touch on this, to say, if God loves me, then why am I suffering? Both of these things can be debilitating if we don't have a, um, a good or at least a reasonable answer about them. And so the more common way that this question is asked usually goes like this. If, if God is a good God, then why, why is there suffering in the world or evil or trials? And we've used the, you know, kind of some synonymous terms over these past weeks. But if, if God is good, then why does it seem like challenging or bad things happen to us? And the answer to this question 
is a pretty straightforward one. We'll unpack it, but I want to give you the answer up front. Uh, the existence of suffering in the world is not evidence against the reality of the God of Scripture. This is a, a serious question we have to wrestle with, but it's not one that should bring us to the place of disbelief. And I'll give you some examples here. So in his book, very well worth reading, The Reason for God, there's lots of writings on this subject, but this is, a, this is one that I think is very easy to read. So in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller quotes a philosopher named J.I. Mackey. And this philosopher writes this about this subject. This is in a chapter of the book addressing, you know, is suffering kind of a, uh, does it negate the reality of God? And so this philosopher, J.I. Mackey, writes this. He says, if a good and powerful God exists, we believe these things about God, he would not allow pointless evil or suffering in the world. But because there is so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. And so by the traditional God, what we're talking about is the God, the God of Scripture. And he goes on to say, some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. This is a very pointed statement that I guarantee you people that you know in your life believe. They're basically saying, because life seems crazy sometimes, can't imagine how you can worship a God who can't stop this, right? Now, or who permits this, or whatever the, the, the origin, the root issue of the suffering is. Now, I want to look at this. This is kind of the springboard for what we're going to discuss in this first idea. And the main problem, this quote will be behind me, so maybe just work through it with me as we're working. The main problem with this way of thinking is that hidden in the word, hidden, there's a hidden meaning in this word, pointless. Okay, This is kind of the, the key statement in what this guy is saying. And this whole argument is built on this assumption that if you cannot, and this is not limited just to suffering, but in the context of what we're talking about right now, this is where the arrow hits the, the uh, bullseye. The assumption here is that if you cannot as an individual, I cannot as an individual, this guy's an individual, personally see the point of something, then there just isn't a, a point to it. That's what he's saying. I can't see the point, so therefore there must not be any point. And while this sounds rational and good in theory, it is not always the case. In fact, I have said this before, that everybody has faith in something in life. You know, for the Christian, it's a pretty clear uh, object. We have faith in Jesus. But the reality is, is you will not find a single person on earth functioning without some kind of a faith structure. And here we have another one. It's just not Jesus. In this way of believing, which is now used to disavow God, this requires an incredibly big leap of faith. And the faith is in us. It's in a person. It's in a man. And in this world, uh, somebody is granted or it grants people a limitless amount of authority to judge whether or not something is pointless or not. So whether you are a person who is inclined towards the philosophical, and I know many of you are, I've had good conversations with you, you, you want to go 400 feet deep in the water every time we're talking about something. If you're inclined from this angle, which is very valid, or you're the everyday person who maybe doesn't want to get into the white tower of academic or Christian philosophy, you just see suffering uh, as a reason to, to not deny God's existence, whatever the reason is, I want to challenge you today to consider uh, the, the fault with a statement like this. It is the reality that, that our minds might not always be able to adequately sort out the depths of the universe in every suffering situation to determine whether or not there actually might be reasons that we do not personally see yet or even ever for what we're going through. That's the problem here. To say that this has no point and it just signifies that God, the assumption is a bad God, like we talked about last week, is a problem. Because now, in the Christian worldview, what you have is a finite man casting judgment on an infinite God. And in the Christian world, this breaks down at a number of levels. Now, let me give you another example of this, another way to think about this. The fact that if, if you know, I'm suffering right now and I just can't see the point, then that means God is bad and there's no point to any of this. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Uh, there's a great philosopher, 
Uh, and he's got a son, somewhat ironically, his son turned out to be a great philosopher too. They're both Christians named Alvin Plantinga. And he uh, teaches at the University of Notre Dame, or at least did, and he uses this analogy to point out what is wrong with this way of thinking in a very practical way. So uh, many of you camp. Um, I do not camp because I prefer to have places that I sleep that have air conditioning units on the wall where I can adjust temperature and cold drinks at every point. Camping's not my thing, but we have a large constituent of people that like to camp at our church. And so uh, if you camp, this think about this, right? You go out camping, and uh, if you are not in your tent— and you open your tent and you look into your tent. And if you're looking for a St. Bernard, which is a super big burly dog, right? What he says is, if you open your tent and you are looking for a St. Bernard and you do not see a St. Bernard in your tent, then it's probably pretty reasonable to say there probably is not a, a St. Bernard in my tent. It's visibly not there. However, if you look for, uh, for something that we call a, a noceum in Florida, any of you familiar with noceums? Yes, all of you are sinning angrily right now when you think about what a noceum does, right? <clears throat> a noceum is an extremely small insect. And it's got an incredibly nasty bite, uh, disproportionate to its size. And it does seem that um, along with retirees, noceums move to New Smyrna. That seems to be their, prim- <laughs> their primary place of existence, right? So New Smyrna is like the noceum capital of the world. You get out of the car, and then there are so many noceums that you can actually see them on your leg, okay? So, and they bite, and they're nasty. They're like 10 times worse than a mosquito. So if you were to say... Hey, I've opened my tent, and I want to know if there could possibly be a noceum in here. Well, then what he says is that's probably not entirely reasonable to say that there isn't one, because after all, uh, nobody can see a, a noceum, right? So you'd have to kind of adjust your thinking a little bit. Now, the idea behind this thought is that many people assume if there was a reason for our suffering, uh, it would and should be immediately obvious and easy to see. Suffering in this analogy is kind of like the St. Bernard, not the noceum. But the question in this, and this is the question we've been asking over these past weeks, is why do we just assume this stuff? See, our assumptions, it's kind of the epicenter. It's it's the revelation of the epicenter of what we believe. So if we just assume that if we can't see something or a valid reason for something at this very instance in our life, that it's pointless, it begins to say things about the deeper things we believe, the worldviews we have dictating and defining who we are and how we function. So the real question in this is, why would a person just assume that? Why would they just assume there's no point? And I did answer this question last week. We won't spend a lot of time on this this morning because, because there's a, it was unpacked greatly last week. But I just want to reintroduce the idea. We as people need answers to questions like this because we are naturally uncomfortable with the mysteries of life. No human is ever okay with not understanding, at least most of us are not, why things are happening in their lives. So it is a very natural response. We use the analogy of where there are shadows in life. We want that stuff lit up. When there's a problem, we want to light it up. We assume this way there is no point or there is a point. Uh, You know, God is doing something. God isn't doing something because at least it gives us an answer to the question. It might not be something we like. But it it gives an answer. It brings some finality to something. This is just pointless. That's why. The truth is, though, that assumption could very well be wrong. And in the Christian faith, that is wrong. There may very well be reasons that we do not clearly see for our suffering as we endure it at the present or even ever. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. And here's how we can prove this. If you have any life experience, and everybody in this room does to a certain degree, if you have any life experience, you know Time always reveals greater purposes for why we go through what we go through in life. You might not know exactly why right now there is a point, or why God or how God could redeem something that seems really problematic for his good. But over time, the purpose of suffering, it becomes this. 
it is more likely to be a noceum rather than a St. Bernard. Time always proves that there can be purpose and redemptive value in the trials that we deal with in life. Now, there are a couple of other things that we, that we can say about this, okay? Uh, scripture teaches us, when we talk about this statement, that, a, that a, a good God would just essentially subject us to pointless suffering. Um, some suffering, Scripture teaches us, is a direct result of our own faulty choices. And we touched on this last week. It's very easy to, uh, to adhere to a deferral, a blame system in life. To just, like, what this guy is saying is, listen, anything bad happening to you, if there is a God, is his fault. Ultimately, and always his fault. And, and that's a challenge because there are times when the things we do, right, the causes we create in life have a direct effect on our life. Our actions create consequences. They can create suffering and trial. So it's really not fair to just throw God under the bus every time, although he is easy to throw under, bus, under the bus. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I do know that there are lots of people and times in culture and life where there is innocent suffering, like in a natural disaster. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But I'm just saying, uh, we, you know, we shouldn't minimize that, but we should also recognize that some suffering can really be the consequence of, of human choice. Because a real world where people can make real choices requires the real possibility of suffering as a result of some of those bad choices. For example, it could be convenient to say, God, why is my liver failing? Um, but if the truth is, is you've been excessively drinking your whole life, there is some onus that has to be applied to your own life in that situation, right? Uh, we know in life, medically speaking, uh, smoking can kill you. We know that there are times in the construction industry where negligence, right, uh, skirting corners, cutting corners, negligence in buildings sometimes results in the collapse of a building during a storm or something, consequently creating death and, uh, and death and, or uh, some kind of injury. People's lives, we know, have been snuffed out by the murder of, of drunken driving. In a world, not everywhere, but it's kind of pervasive in a lot of places, cheating, lying, and stealing, selfishness, these things have no, sh there's no shortage of them. They exist all around us. And in our society, they do produce forms of suffering. If I steal everything you own, that's going to cause you to suffer. And that is not God's fault in that point. It is, it is essentially, at that point, my fault. Because I am, I am producing uh, uh, some kind of an action causing you to suffer. And so when it comes to a, a great deal of suffering... We have got to make sure, like I said last week, that we don't always blame God for our choices. When we do, um, it's, it says something about what we understand about God. We will sing that he is good, but then believe that he is not. And even worse in this paradigm, you can see where this belief goes un when it's unchecked. It ends up with what this guy has said. It then becomes something that we, we use to deny him. Because uh, in this particular instance, here's what I find. It's great irony about this, particularly when it comes to suffering. Okay. In one instance, both the believing and the unbelieving world will demand, that's what we're saying here, we will demand that unless God violates my freedom to choose, unless he violates my freedom to do things that might be problematic in my own life or others, unless he, he intervenes and stops me from creating potential suffering, unless he does it, I'm not going to believe in him. In other words, I don't believe in God because he will not intervene in my life in ways that I, or other people's lives that I feel is necessary. What's happening over here I think is wrong. He should stop that and fix it. But then that same person, when it comes to other areas of their lives, say their morality, will tell him, you have no business violating my freedom to choose by telling me what is right or wrong. Who are you to tell me what is right or wrong? This is the Joe complex, right? Who are you, oh man? That's what God says. So you have people adhering to, to this belief, but then they're both using it for and against God in situations. 
And it goes to show us that these things, while they might be issues keeping us from pursuing God, keeping a, a believer from knowing God more deeply, or an unbeliever from believing Him for the first time ever, those are root. That's not the root issue of what's going on here. Those are expressions of a deeper heart issue of why we will not cast our affections on God. It's a problem, and it's an inconsistent one. And so the first thing we really do have to say about this is some suffering. Man, it's very easy to blame God for it in all areas, pointless. You know, that whole idea I gave last week, he's like a Greek God bored, ruining your life. It is incredibly easy to just blame God for everything. But we do need to recognize that sometimes suffering and trial is caused by poor choices that have consequences. And in the middle of that suffering, here's where the humanity of it comes out. In the middle of that suffering, we might wonder, like, why it couldn't be different right now? Or what is the point of this? That's where, that's where human, humanity begins to kind of take root in our lives. We might say, like, why is this happening? Why would God permit this to exist? So what, why? What is the point of it all? In that present moment, we, we are going to ask those questions in the present moment. But you have to recognize that just because you don't have an immediate answer at that moment doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a, a redemptive reason that God is working now in our lives to, to bring good out of what somebody might even intentionally have meant to be uh, harm in our lives. Now, there's an old folktale that explains this reality really well, and I'll share it to you. It's not going to be behind me. I kind of want you to just listen. In other words, what I'm saying is get out your milk. It's story time, all right? So listen to me here for a couple of minutes. However you focus, just kind of focus on what I'm saying. It's a story about a farmer that really uh, explains this well. You might have even heard it before, old folktale. Once upon a time in a country far away, uh, there was a farmer. And this farmer had many friends and neighbors in the village near his home. Well, one day it happened that the farmer went out to feed his horses. But when he got to the pasture, he discovered that his prized stallion had run off. And while all the farmer's friends gathered around him and expressed their sorrow, that's a bad thing, the farmer's friends said to him. But the farmer only replied, maybe. So it happened that the next day the farmer's horse returned and brought two other wild horses. And the farmer's neighbors again gathered around him and this time expressed their joy. That's a good thing, they said to the farmer. But the farmer looked at them and only replied, maybe. So it happened a day later, the farmer's son went out to try and break the new horses and was thrown down very hard upon the ground and he broke his leg. And once again, the neighbors came and said, that's a bad thing. But the farmer replied, maybe. And so it happened that as the farmer's son lay in bed with his broken leg, a band of soldiers came conscripting young men to fight in the king's latest war. But when the soldiers came upon the father's son with his broken leg, they did not take him. And so again, all the neighbors rushed to the farmer and said, that is a good thing. But the farmer replied, maybe. So it happened that when the farmer's son had healed from his broken leg, the boy went out to celebrate. He got drunk, arrested, and thrown into prison. And all the neighbors rushed in to tell their sadness to the farmer. That's a bad thing, they said. But the farmer only replied, maybe. Now, what's the point of this story? You're all intelligent. You've probably already figured it out already. The point is that we don't always see the point or the purpose of everything that is happening in our life at that moment. And that's why I say time is probably a better precursor for us to decide what is and is not pointless in our lives as opposed to some immediate irrational or emotional judgment. In other words, you need a rudder to be able to sort through trial and suffering when it comes about. And here's another example of this. this is, I've saved this. This is like hopefully my, 
my designated hitter shot here, right? The home run that proves this. The greatest, one of the greatest, as far as the Old Testament anyways, goes, the biblical story of Joseph is another great example of this, right? It's the story, think about this, of a young man who, who was a favorite of his father and hated by his brothers because of it. His brothers stained him because of the love that his father had for him. And because of their anger, right? Not God's anger, not God's intentional will for them to do this. Because of their anger, they beat him up, throw him into a well, and sell him into a life of slavery into Egypt. And over these next years, Joseph experienced an incredible amount of trial and suffering. The direct root of a human's evil. Years of imprisonment, hardship, and injustice. Even worse, the people that are supposed to love him. Your family should not be the people doing this to you, but that's what his story was. And throughout it all, his character is not ruined. His character is refined, and his life is strengthened. He begins to press into God, and God, because of these circumstances, God makes good on the promise of suffering. He brings about something incredibly good through something that somebody else meant to be incredibly evil. Because of his imprisonment, through a series of events, he ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt, and he's put in a position of power. The weak now becomes strong, because the strong is using their power for the benefit of others. He's put in a position of power from which he is able to save countless lives from starvation, starvation, the Egyptian famine. famine. I hope you've read this story. That's what's happening here. And included in those people that he has saved, it is his own brothers and their families. The very people who hurt him now become the subject of a grace that he can withhold from them. Let me tell you, that is cosmic goodness being worked out in a person's life. That is the evidence of the grace of God experienced and being shown to others. I will love you even though you do not love me. That's what Joseph does. And think about this. If God had not let this stuff happen, if God just, based on our judgment, stopped that God, all the events of this in his life unfold, if they, if they did not happen, he would not have risen to the place that he did, and he would not have been able to save the lives of so many other people. And Joseph arrives at this conclusion. If you want the summary of this whole story, it is this. He confronts his brothers. I mean, granted, he addresses the evil directly. This is another thing with, with suffering. If there is a, a root evil, we should as Christians have the gumption to deal with it. But here he confronts, confronts his brothers and he says this. It'll be behind me. What they did, what they did, they meant it, right, for evil. But God meant and used it for good and for saving many people. The very nature of these talks, it's explicitly laid out here. And although you might not have this exact wording in other narratives in Scripture, you can see this, that what people often mean for, for evil or ill, God can reach his hand into that stuff and bring about good. So think about this regularly, right? I hear people say, and I've said this myself, that some of the greatest blessings and most important lessons of their lives have been learned through very painful and difficult seasons in life. Uh, don't get me wrong, every single one of us, I'm sure, has a, a litany of successes in our lives and failures. But I can tell you, although success feels sweeter, the reality of the pain of failure probably has a more, a, 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 it's got a better bite for a lesson. And so what happens here is if you see mistakes and errors, uh, if you see these things as th they give us an ability to learn and to grow, some of the greatest men and women on earth, we only celebrate their success stories. But the truth is that they have a history of making a lot of errors and mistakes. But at some point, the light bulb pops. They recognize that there can be a purpose in this. There can be something to grow from. And they have learned through very painful and difficult seasons in life that something productive can come out of them. How much more so is this true when we, when we believe that we have a God who says, listen, I'm going to make sure 
You might not understand it today, but I'm going to make sure that good things come out of the pain and the anguish that you experience on this earth at times. None of them have a false bravado, right? None of them are, are happy or want to go through this stuff. I don't ever pray for this stuff in my life. Share this with you with my son. wasn't asking for that. There's no superficial kind of plastic reality here where we're saying, Oh, Lord, please help me to suffer that I might grow in thy grace. That's not where we're at. That's not where we even want to be. But we have to be at the place where we can trust to a certain degree, a growing degree, that there can be a a point and a purpose in that stuff. A greater good can come out of it. And this is where the assumption has to be challenged. Why do so many people, both in the faith and outside of the faith, just assume that this is pointless, that there's a problem to it? It's because it's an issue of how we understand the character and the nature of God. And there's a greater liability for those who say that we believe in a good God when we kind of, you know, level him with these accusations. So I'll give you a kind of another quote here. Uh, this is actually from Tim Keller himself, not J.I. Mackey. He describes this reality like this. He says, with time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. So why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of them? See, that's a different assumption. That's a different set of glasses. That's saying, I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I'm going to pray that that thorn be removed from my side like Paul. But through all this, I'm going to trust that there actually could be good reasons. And I'm also going to trust that you're not bored and hurting me today. That there's a cosmic purpose sometimes beyond what I can fully grasp. It's a mystery, a partial mystery, like I said last week. Suffering is, we're not clueless about it. We get a lot of incredibly powerful truth to hold on to. But yet there still is going to be some shadow at times in the mystery. Suffering. So the point of all of this is this, as is true with so many of the major things that we say we believe about God, we, we need a different assumption. We'll talk about this next week when we talk about the resurrection. For some of us, we just don't believe. We don't believe to the point where we experience the grace of Jesus powerfully because our assumption is that that doesn't exist. We might profess it, but we don't believe it to the point where we actually experience it, where it matters. Life's trials are like this. They have to be seen through the eternal perspective of God's eyes. And furthermore, we should never take something God uses to help us grow and know him more deeply. He says, I can, I can bring some good out of this. We should be careful to use those things as a tool to deny him. And the challenge in this, though, is that it's very easy to do just that. Because when it comes to life situations, we as people tend to see things very differently. We, we looked at certain scenarios last week of, of people like Job's friends uh, seeing his situation. They, they were watching his narrative unfold. And they had a very uh, faulty understanding about what was happening. Their counsel was terrible. And i give you another example of this, of, of uh, people looking at the same set of circumstances but interpreting them very differently. It's kind of a humorous example. It happened uh, last week. So... For the first time, this will show you how long it's been since I've been, I've been really behind on movies, and so I've been trying to kind of catch up with some free time that I've had. And I finally got around to watching uh, the 2012 blockbuster film, The Avengers. Any of you guys see that film? Okay. So pretty powerful movie, lots of human themes in it, really great stuff, uh, blockbuster film. And uh, it only took me like you know five years to get around to it. But nonetheless, I finally rented it, uh, and my son and I watched it. And you know, it's the story of these superheroes, five of them, that all have these really kind of troubled paths, and they get together, and they start to defend the Earth. And the scene climaxes, like the movie climaxes, in this massive battle scene. At the end of the movie, uh, uh, New York City, you know, is being invaded uh, by aliens. And, of course, the, the whole moral of the story is that at some point they recognize they're better together. And so they unite. 
the Avengers, and they come to defend the city. And and I'll tell you, the end of the the end of the movie was was pretty fascinating to me. I was totally hooked on the battle scenes because it was showing like the total destruction of Manhattan, which is a place I've spent a fair amount of time. And so I mean, like stuff was blowing up everywhere. People were running for their lives. Iconic buildings were being destroyed. It was some crazy stuff. It was like destruction and chaos everywhere. And so I'm hooked into this, watching these you know some places I visited as a kid in elementary school. Uh, they're just being destroyed by this alien horde. And my son is sitting next to me, 10 now, just about 10. And apparently he didn't see any of that. He's showing no emotion in this whole scene until something very, very drastic happened. What might you say caused his psyche to go into kind of, you know, chaos? He pops a capillary when an incredibly large alien, so large you don't even see the alien, you just see the foot of it, steps on a sabret hot dog stand. <laughs> now, when that happens, no, I'm not joking, he looks at me and he cries out, he goes... Ah, they stepped on the hot dogs, just like that, right? And so I'm looking at him, and I had to pause the movie because I don't know if he was hungry or what at that moment. But nonetheless, uh, this is what rocked his craw. Now, let me give you some insider track here. This is a, an artist's rendition of a Sabret hot dog stand. Um, or if you have been to New York or spent any time there, these, these things are iconic. Uh, they are affectionately known to by New Yorkers as dirty water dogs. I know that sounds disgusting, but it's essentially some person you don't know on every corner of the city with a stand like this selling hot dogs out of a pool of water that we just assume is dirty and we're trusting our our immune system to deal with it right so they are truly a cherished cultural item in new york and in my household we're pretty particular about the quality of hot dog we we're total foodies on many areas but this is one of them it's just the new yorkers in us i guess and so my son apparently knows that, that he has imbibed that expectation and he lost it i mean it was really really funny uh, that stand very valued in our household we eat these hot dogs we buy them Cherished as it is, when you start to you know dial out and look at the big picture, like the biggest buildings in New York have just been destroyed amongst people. That is probably a more significant thing to focus on in that situation than the destruction of uh, of, of a hot dog stand. So you've got a great example here, right? Two people we're watching the same thing. And I didn't even register that until my son kind of uh, popped it up. We're drawing entirely different conclusions, assumptions, and emotional responses about what is happening from the same situation in front of us. And I think there's something, an object lesson that can be derived from he and I's interaction there. When it comes to suffering, uh, there is really something we can learn from this. We have to strive to embrace God's vantage point. There are going to be many ways that we can look at circumstances, but there's only one God-approved way, if you will. And, and seeing circumstances, no matter what they are, good or bad, we've discussed this. You know, if you think God loves you more when, when things are good, uh, you're going to think he loves you less when they're bad or vice versa. Doing so, seeing uh, things through God's vantage point, it dramatically changes the way you see things. And here is another timely example of this. I mentioned it last week and will again. It is Palm Sunday. This is the week of Jesus' crucifixion. There was all kinds of things going on in the world that day. And think about Jesus on the cross. Put his disciples in here and ask them, because they don't have the whole story yet. They don't have the point yet. Ask them, do you want the Roman guard to take your Messiah away? Put him on a cross and kill him? Do you want that right now? Their answer is going to be no. And thank God that that was not an option God gave them. <laughs> because if, they were, if you were to say stop the crucifixion, they would have stopped it. It looked pointless, unjust, and problematic. And it was unjust and problematic on a number of levels. It was truly an evil act committed against an innocent man. But it was not pointless. And that's the whole problem with seeing suffering like this guy J.I. Mackey does or the average person in your life who says, you know, that stuff's ridiculous. Forget God because of it. We know now there was a great point in all of that. 
Jesus' apparently pointless suffering brought redemption and hope to the world. It was through suffering that God's grace was revealed. And that's why you've got to be careful to not use suffering Every little thing or big thing that happens in your life that you disagree with, you have to be careful to stop using that as something to deny your God, especially if you're a believer. When he has proven time and time again that he wants to use that to lead you to a deeper love for him, the assumption has to change. Because if it doesn't change, you become the subject of the second question. When you have this assumption about God that he's negative, bad, problematic, and evil— it leads to the second question that I want to address this morning. Why do some people feel like walking away from God will help them to deal with hard times? That's what that actually says. The act is walking away. The reality is you're saying, I don't even need you. I'm over you. And if you really understand the nature of who Jesus is in your life, that's the problem. Now, a very common response for the way that some Christian people uh, behave when things get difficult in life is they do walk away from God. And almost always this is because they are either intentionally or maybe subliminally leveling some kind of blame against him. That, you know, that if you feel like God is a fault for your issues, then of, of course you're going to not follow him. That just makes human sense. You wouldn't be around somebody who feels abusive towards you. However, this is really unwise and can even be considered spiritually illogic. It is truly a form of, of Christian atheism. And so to unpack this for a few moments, I actually have to talk less about Christianity and more about atheism because this is a belief that is actually not a Christian belief. And here's why. Abandoning your faith in God does not help anything when you suffer. It is so point. This is truly pointless. So the fact that a Christian considers this an option really requires some soul searching. And to figure this out, walking away from God... We'll analyze the words of a, a world-famous atheist named Richard Dawkins. Uh, he's also an author, a uh, teacher. He's, you know, pretty much, I, I think it's pretty fair to say he is probably the most famous, famous atheist in the world. He's written a ton of books. I've read several of them. And the one that we'll kind of highlight today is from a very famous book called The God Delusion. Hopefully you've kind of figured out the root of this already. Uh, and he says this about the natural reality of a world and life without God. Hang on to this, because this is how we're going to proceed for the rest of the morning. He says, in a universe, if there is no God, right, in a universe of blind physical forces, this is where we're dealing with cause now and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in any of it, nor any justice. The universe, we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. It's like a blank slate of coincidence. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And here's the point of his thing. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And he says we dance to his music. What he's saying is his DNA drives you. The nonsense and the accidental nature of who you are, this is what makes you you. And this is a very common belief. It's a common belief for the heart and atheist, but it is what the Christian who walks away from God in times of trial, they believe the same thing. They just are not saying it like this. And it really does not make sense. Let's look at him for a second. Uh, for example... Richard Dawkins makes some of his living by writing books and selling them. And I want you to think about this. Think about your own life. Maybe kind of pause this into your own world. What if his publishers stopped paying him? They just said, write books and give them to us. That's just the way it's going to be. At some point, he might feel that that's wrong or unjust or cruel. But in this world where you can't really affirm that feeling, what you've got to say is, listen, um, to remain consistent with the fact that we just dance to DNA, and I hope it works out for you, this godless worldview, he'd have to say, like, hey, I guess this is just some bad luck, and the corrupt action of these guys uh, is just a byproduct of them doing their little DNA dance, right? You just got to deal with it. I know you guys dance, right? Some of you do? No? Listen, if you think there's no God, if you live as if there is no God, if you live thinking you're just here by pure accident, this is what the Christian atheist prescribes to. 
How does anyone truly determine whether anything is right or wrong? When you think that your brain is just a result of an accident, therefore your thoughts are also the result of a natural accident, you, you're going you're gonna to get to some pretty hard-edged conclusions about how we see each other and life in general. Because in this worldview, violence and suffering are just natural and acceptable accidents. You're kind of on your own with them. You're told to deal with it. It is the hard reality of a world without a true north because there's really no real way to concretely say anything is wrong. How do you say, well, it's wrong to be racist? How do you say, well, it's wrong to oppress women? Well, you have to have some objective something that says people are equal in my eyes. They've been created in my image. Therefore, they're all equally valuable. Unless you have an author prescribing worth to all of people, it's really hard to make assumptions about why people matter or they don't. And all you have to do is look throughout the course of history to see people who went to extremes when they stopped believing that. They had the ability to do things to other people just that were just so wrong. And we say confidently that is wrong. In this worldview, this stuff is just acceptable because there's no concrete way to say that anything is wrong. And left unchecked, this ultimately robs us and life of value. It cheapens suffering and, and in the end, our death. Think about this. The deep loss and grief connected to the loss of a loved one, it's kind of just now an irrational fear or, or behavior because death is just a natural thing. You're here by an accident and accidentally you'll end when the time is right, luckily speaking. So get over it. You see, if there is no God, then, or you act as if there is no God, then what your feelings are about your situation, even them being wrong about whatever the suffering you're enduring in life is, that's all that they just are. You can't really say, hey, this is wrong, because, because there is no God, and people in that point can kind of just do what they want. There's no true north to identify what is right or wrong, about what is unjust or just. These things are just reduced to feelings or opinions. And we operate according to these worldviews. What happens is there's kind of no end to where it stops. It can lead to total apostasy for those following Jesus, but it also creates some problematic paradigms in the world because it, you just can't create exceptions when this is convenient or politically incorrect. And this is what happens is people start to create exceptions with this because they realize the idiocracy of this. For example, imagine applying Dawkins' atheism uh, to someone who is currently suffering at the hands of ISIS overseas. The brutality of that people group is nauseating. And it should create a righteous indignation in us. But imagine telling those people that these men, clearly acting out of pure evil, are simply hurting you because they are just dancing to the tune of their DNA. You know, to the sane mind, that answer should feel wrong. And if you want to know why it feels wrong, it's because it is wrong. As people, we have got to be able to look at this stuff and identify what is right and wrong. And that's why the atheist is pretty suspiciously silent during times of suffering, because their godless view offers no hope or purpose to people in pain. It creates almost at times an apathy about relieving the condition of suffering. I've said this before. You will seldom see busloads of atheists. And I give the example of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. It was not thousands of probably hundreds of thousands by the end of that five-year reign of atheists unpacking buses in the city of New Orleans. It was the Christian population from the globe because suffering now matters and there's a response to it. But you don't have that if suffering is just like bad luck for you. You see, if you are a Christian now who walks away from God during the hard times, you'll likely suffer the same hopeless fate. It leads to a pointlessness. And so you see, abandoning your belief in God does not help you deal with suffering. When you go through suffering, the best it does by walking away from God is it causes some real questions that really don't have any answers, or at least the ones you get are really hard-edged. Because generally speaking, whether our culture denies this or not, it is undeniable that we are moral beings. Everybody has a morality they function by. Most of us have a sense 
It might be pluralized, but we have a sense of what we think is right or wrong in this world. You don't believe that? Just look at Facebook for 10 minutes, because after that, my head explodes. There is a, no shortage of opinion about what people think is right and wrong, because by nature, people are generally moral. They have a compass, a north they're functioning from, or migrating to. And so if you're really struggling with the question, how could a good God allow suffering? At the moment you're actually suffering, here's where, here's where this stuff we're talking about now, these really eloquent white tower uh, arguments of atheism, or the, the, the practical application of that in the Christian life, that stuff tends to go out the window. Because when suffering actually comes, in the moment that you really have pain in your life, the humanity of your suffering is what shines through, not an academic response to it. Why? Because you've been created in the image of a God who values life. A God who says, I don't like it when this happens, and neither should we. A God who values not just life in general, but your life. The reason you feel this way, the reason you struggle with the question, good and bad, why is this happening? It's not because you're dancing to the DNA, of uh, the tune of your DNA. It's more a reality for the believer that you're responding to the song of your Savior. And that song is a gentle whisper in your ear that says, there is something more to all of this than, than just this. They're two different songs, and the one you dance to will, will significantly dictate who you become in life. And you may be here wanting to walk away from God right now because of a different set of suffering questions. You're not the philosopher like we talked at the front end of this. You're just the person who's trying to figure out life. You say things like, why doesn't God provide the financial support my family so desperately needs? Or why has God allowed my marriage to grow so cold? Or why is God letting my children rebel? Why is this sickness constantly upon me? I'm taking more vitamin C than I know how. I'm listening to everything my doctor says, but I cannot shake this sickness. These questions, the practical nature of suffering, they likely go on. And in our lives, I'm sure they do. And there's probably 100 questions I've not mentioned. No matter how deeply we feel the sting of suffering, that's what this is. It's the evidence of the sting of suffering. We have to be careful to not use it as a convenient justification to drive us away from God. All I would say this morning is we should at least consider the idea that some of our suffering could really be the byproduct of poor choices. It could be that. But even if it's not poor choices, there may be reasons that we do not clearly see yet for why suffering happens. It, it is undoubtable that some suffering is caused by human choices and the general nature of sin. We talked about that last week. But no matter which the root is, no matter what the origin, walking away, listen, those of you following Jesus, it doesn't matter what has caused it. Walking away from the one who promises to redeem the pain in your life for your good doesn't solve anything. There is no purpose in that. And I know, here's how we'll kind of wrap up this morning, I know that this answer is not going to satisfy your emotional needs. They're not meant to. No answer properly and perfectly satisfies the emotional reality of suffering. They're not meant to. So don't think that I think after 45 minutes you're just going to be like, oh, suffering, that's filed in the figure that out thing and then we're good to go. These responses are not meant to do that. But there is a response that is meant to give us hope and peace during that. So while there are many things that Scripture teaches us about suffering, it doesn't teach us everything about suffering. Uh, there is one thing that is absolutely clear when it comes to how God wants us to deal with our suffering. Here's where if you're looking for light to, to kind of illuminate the shadow, this is how I want to leave you this morning. No matter what the root of suffering, the cause, or why people deny God because of it, here's the reality of how God sees suffering in our lives. Throughout Scripture, God has made it very clear that he offers us himself to deal with suffering. He says, when it happens... I am with you to deal with it. Scripture is explicitly clear. Here's what we know. Explicitly clear that God cares for you, is with you, and understands your suffering when you go through it. And I'll read to you Isaiah 43 too. It describes this. When, not if, when you pass through the waters, 
And waters are not a negative, they're a negative thing here. I will be with you. And when you pass through the river, not a good thing. We're not talking about the gentle river. They, these waters will not sweep over you. We're talking about turbulent water. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Yes, I agree. Now, notice the promise, right? It's not if you believe in me, there's no fire or water. It's not even, this is a general statement. In one sense, it applies to all of humanity. Everybody goes through the fire and the water. But for the believer, there's a different hope in how we go through the fire of the water. And fire in the water. Suffering is a given in this passage and in many other places. And if you've lived long enough in your life, we don't escape it. The promise here is that when you go through the trials, that God will be with us. And this raises another question, one that I think is adequately answered over these next two weeks. How do you know this promise is true? This is an assumption. God says, I'll be with you. But how do we know this is true? How do we get to the place where we, we recognize God will walk with us through affliction? Well, God makes good on that promise physically in the New Testament. And we are again reminded of it this Palm Sunday. You need the greatest example of the promise to be with you for your affliction? The cross shows us that God always keeps his promises. This week we celebrate the death. Next week, the fact that the stone is rolled away. You see, the reason you can trust God's promise to be with you when you suffer is because he didn't just talk about it. Jesus is God. God himself becomes vulnerable and subjects himself to the same suffering and pain and even death we all deal with in life. And we can believe his promise to find hope and purpose in our suffering, not because he has just given us a verbal promise, but because he has already walked that road for us. God walked the road of suffering so that he would be there with it on, he'd be there with us on it when we walk it too. He's already been down that road and he is uniquely qualified to hold our hand as we go down the same road. And that's why with the right perspective, trial and suffering really changes. It can become something you will never like it, but it can be something you no longer fear or in the case of lordship, bow to. You're not meant to worship or, or follow suffering. You're not meant to make that your God. You're meant to see Jesus clearly through that so that he becomes more of your God. These things now have purpose. They become something God has promised to use to restore our hope in him through. Struggles are no longer seen as something, like we said last week, that reveals God's displeasure with you. Rather, that's something God uses to bathe you in his extreme love and mercy. And I will tell you, and if he was sitting here, I'd tell him, this is a better explanation of why we suffer than Richard Dawkins' atheism. It's just better. It makes more sense in the human condition. We probably more identify with that statement. We want there to be a, a meaning in this than we do hope it works out for you. Christian or not, that's just going to be pro true. Now, there's a beautiful biblical analogy. I've shared it before. It used to describe this truth that we're talking about today. And if you read the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with this idea of what we call the refiner's fire. And in the old world, uh, to create a precious metal, this is not just in the scripture, but this is the way metalsmiths worked. And they still do to this very day. When they were refining precious metals, like especially gold or silver, it required that a metalsmith put that metal, it's a block of kind of impure metal, in, into a, a refining fire, an incredibly hot fire. And over time, what happens is the heat removes the impurities. And so to the untrained eye, if you knew nothing about gold and you heard that gold was very valuable and you saw some guy shoving gold into a furnace, you would probably think that that's torturous and unwise, that, that it's going to ruin or destroy the metal because it's too valuable to do that. You put it into a blazing hot fire and you start seeing pieces of it melt off. But the metalsmith knows that this process doesn't destroy the metal. It is meant to purify and strengthen the metal for the sole reason that the metalsmith knows the metal is valuable. The metalsmith cares for the metal 
and, and puts it through the fire because he has recognized the, the purity and the preciousness of it. There is a great affinity and affection for it. And in the, in the paradigm of suffering, God is the great metalsmith and we are his precious metal. The reason we can believe God is good to us, even when life is hard, is because through suffering, God promises to change us. He promises that the one hope we can cling to is that he will refine us into his image, like a Joseph, right? Because like that metal, we are precious to him, even when we suffer. He'll bring purpose to that. And I want to be frank, I'm not denying that at times the way God refines our lives, it can be painful and challenging. You have to give things up, deny ourselves. We've got to place others before ourselves. Sometimes we're forced to make very hard decisions. However, you've got to know the, the mark of the fire, the refiner's fire, is a mark of God's love for you. So believe this. If you take anything out of this little mini-series on suffering before we go to the hope of the cross, believe I cannot properly and, and accurately in every instance define the root cause of what a trial is. We have said there are passes sometimes. There are times God brings them about. There are times we bring them on ourselves. There are times others place them on us. None of us can perfectly say what the root of a trial is in every situation. But I will tell you that God wants you to know you can experience his goodness in any trial, no matter what the root of it is, when you begin to embrace this perspective of God, when you start to see him working in your life this way. And here's the challenge. Here's our battle as we leave this place today. As people, we always want the mystery of suffering explained. We want the immediate answers. We want like the disciples last week. He's blind. Uh, was it the mom and the dad or was it his actions? He, they wanted Jesus to say like, yeah, it was his mom. That's the problem. Great. Suffering's figured out. We move on and go heal kids or whatever. That's not what's going on. Jesus gives them a, a clarification there. There are not always immediate answers and why these things go on. There are times when we want an audience. Like you don't have the answer. So you want to voice your disagreement with the way things are happening in your life. I want you to know that that is okay that sometimes in life we get these answers there are sometimes we will ask god and he will tell us but there are also times when we ask god and he will not there's a greater purpose and we need time no matter what's happening though you have to know god wants you to know just like paul in the prison cell he is good and no matter what you are going through in life you do not need to look for joy elsewhere why is paul happy why are we studying philippians why is he joyful in a terrible situation? Because he knew this. He didn't look to the cell or his imprisonment. He looked to his Christ. And out of that came a joy that led him to live sacrificially during a season of his life where he should have been focusing on himself. So as we move towards response time, my prayer is this. As we move towards response in the cross, my prayer is that this last month of teaching on suffering has brought me a, a more meaningful understanding of why you suffer in your life. Four sermons are not going to address your every question, but my hope is that you've been given something to hold on to, to re-engage the issue if you truly, truly do deal with it, <clears throat> that there has become some kind of a purpose or meaning in God's economy for why things happen. And as we close, since we have talked about suffering, and as we think about the suffering that Jesus endures for us on the cross, the greatest example of the evil of humanity creating the goodness of God, Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your suffering presently? What you have gone through, or as I said in the very first week, what you will certainly go through at some point. The waters are always ahead of us. When they come, we don't know. But nonetheless, nobody escapes trial and suffering. What is Jesus saying to you about your suffering? And what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for, this sounds really bad, but thank you for suffering. May that be something that we learn to not say in a trivial way. May we recognize the hard edges of it. May we recognize that it never feels good. But may we recognize that under heaven, 
There is nothing that you cannot, will not use, God, for your glory and for our good. May our assumptions this morning, no matter how they have come into this place, if we are challenging you, struggling with you, or passionately in love with you, wherever we are in between those, those waypoints, I pray that you would challenge us to see you the way you want to be seen. It is very easy to see you from our own perspectives, especially in seasons of gray and seasons of shadow. But I pray in those moments you would, in an incredibly great way, show us your light. Maybe we recognize that your goodness and your grace is always present for us and that suffering, no matter when we endure it or how we endure it, you want to be there for us. So may the things we have heard this morning that have challenged our mind, I pray that they would be a gateway to our heart. But I pray, God, if we've heard anything today, that it is this, that no matter what happens with suffering, you love us and care for us. You are present and available to us. May that be the promise we cling to, no matter what season of life we are in. And may we certainly focus on that now, God, as we take this next week to contemplate the reality of you embracing suffering for our good on the cross of Jesus Christ. Your resurrection brings us life. May that be the hope that our hearts focus on. In the name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen.